Welcome along to In Focus. I'm Marcus Stead, and my guest today is Graham Perry, a leading authority on Chinese history and China's economic development. Is China's growing influence something that should be feared or embraced? What will the long-term implications be for America's dominance as the world's leading superpower? Is China creating a slave empire in Africa, or is Chinese investment crucial to the continent's economic development? Graham also has extensive experience as an anti-Semitism awareness trainer, and we're recording the podcast around the time when Labour leader Sakia Starmer has received a draft report into anti-Semitism from the Equality and Human Rights Commission. We discuss the poison of anti-Semitism not only in the Labour Party, but also in Welsh Nationalist Party Plaid Cymru, and indeed in wider society. At what point does legitimate criticism of the Israeli government turn into anti-Semitism? If the name Graham Perry sounds familiar to you, perhaps you were a listener to LBC Radio in the 1990s, where Graham was a regular cover presenter. More on that later. He's also a passionate fan of Arsenal Football Club, who he has supported since 1951. It's an honour to welcome him back to the airwaves. Graham, thank you for joining me. Um, We're going to start this discussion on the subject of China. And at 75 years of age, you're widely considered an authority on China. What is yours and indeed your family's background in regards to China? Yeah, it starts with my father, but he had a lovely phrase when he was himself pressed for saying that he was an authority. He said, um, there are no authorities on China. There are relative degrees of ignorance. And he said he maybe he was a little less ignorant than others. So you start from the bottom down, not from the top, and start parading your talents. He was fortunate enough to be the first Western businessman to go to China in 1953. Um, much has been written about him in the papers over the last um, few weeks because of this book that's been published in Australia. My father was not a spy. Let me say that quite clearly. He had the opportunity to engage in China and he took the opportunity and uh, he built up a business which uh, gave him a presence in China and enabled me to be part of that process because I made my first visit in 1965. But um, he was a very interesting man and it started because the Chinese were looking for new business partners. They didn't want to go back to the old traders who pushed opium into China. They were looking for new people. They made a lot of inquiries, especially at Oxford and Cambridge universities. And the name they kept coming back to was Jack Perry. Mm -hmm. So that's how it all began uh, in that sense. And your relationship with China over many decades has seen you being quoted in the press and in various other outlets as well. But I think we'll, we'll explore this in more depth now. So when discussing China, it's important to look at it not through the prism of what we in Britain and the West consider important, but from a Chinese historical context. And the values are very different to our own in many ways. And our values of freedom in Britain are based on a millennium-long series of events, the Magna Carta, habeas corpus, the civil war to topple the supremacy of Charles I by Parliament, common law, the Great Reform Bill of 1932, one man, one vote, the rule of law, the separation of powers between the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive. Yet China has, how can I put this, a very different starting point, so to speak. They've gone through centuries of dynastic autocracy, 
followed by a century of national humiliation from the opium wars of the 1840s. Then in the early 20th century, there was the Boxer Rebellion, followed by the creation of the Republic of China by Sun Yat-sen in 1912, whose death in 1925 led to three civil wars fought by the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, leading in 1949 to the flight of to Formosa of Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT and then the People's Republic of China. Therefore, the emphasis and the mindset is very different. Is the emphasis primarily not on individual liberty, but on stable prosperity? Not just prosperity. China is today obviously where it's come from and where it came from was deg degradation, as you properly pointed out, humiliation and poverty and they set about rebuilding. They didn't start rebuilding on the basis of the Westminster model of parliaments. They didn't do it on the basis of one man, one vote with general elections, the length and breadth of China. The civil war, and it was a civil war, and you can imagine what it was like in England after uh, Charles I had been decapitated. Um, there was a lot of afters, lot, a lot of consequences. In China, the Communist Party asserted its control and took as its main goal and purpose still today to build up the prosperity and well-being of the Chinese people. And that's been done in large measure. They've had setbacks. The Great Leap Forward didn't go well. The Cultural Revolution was a disaster. And they had the Tiananmen massacres as well. So things haven't been plain sailing. But at mm. the heart of what they've tried to achieve is prosperity for their people in the belief that that brings stability and a relaxed way of life. As to the question of democracy, there is democracy to an extent in China, but it's subject to the rule of the party. But that has the, by and large, that has the support. There's, there are many people here in the West who want to believe the Chinese are unhappy with their government, unhappy with their democracy. But it's actually not the case. It's part of the misrepresentation of China to justify the policies that the, the, the governments of America and Britain have pursued. Well, you've outlined there a, a, a perspective based on your experience and your father's experience. So is it therefore accurate to say that in China, as you've just outlined, the emphasis is on long-term developments over a period of many decades, if not centuries, less emphasis is on individual freedom and personal liberty and is it fair to say that a much lower premium is placed on those elements that we in the West hold dear? Well, no, because again, it, start, it depends on where you start from. Back in 1949, and it is only just 1949, it's not a long time ago. You think back where Britain was in 1949, where Wales was, what was going on in the world of sport and politics. It's not a long time ago. China was at the bottom of the heap, sick man of Asia. And I would say it's not just a question of filling the Chinese people with a better life. It's also a better quality of life in which freedom is part of it. So, for example, the Chinese have a freedom now to choose their work, to choose where to live, to choose what to wear. And they cherish dreams that were completely beyond the expectation of their parents and grandparents. So I would say that the Chinese are much better off materially, still at a low level compared with us. They're not affluent as we would understand it, but for the overwhelming bulk of China, and here I'm echoing a phrase of Harold Macmillan, the prime minister here in the late 50s, the Chinese have never had it so good. And having it so good is partly to do 
with being relaxed in the way they carry on their lives. So they do talk about politics, they do make criticisms, they do voice their frustrations. What they don't have is free elections, a free press, and one man, one vote. And we can't pretend otherwise. But China's priority wasn't that. What China has done is to give a, a growing element of democracy to the people of China, and it is 1.4 billion, whilst giving them the opportunity to enjoy a better life. Well, everybody has a moral authority in life. And for some people, it's the Bible or another religious text. For some people, it's whatever suits themselves. And so, for some people, it's whatever's popular at the time. Hence the rise, in my view, of the woke movement at the moment. They want to be on, seem to be on the right side of fashionable opinion. What is the driving moral authority in China? Well, I think it emerges from what they've achieved since 1949, and they've come along to, to, to two channels. One is a determination to give people a better life, and that was more has become more of a priority uh, since 1979, when China fundamentally changed its priorities in terms of economic growth. But the progress they've done has given justification to the kind of government that they have in the minds of their people in the minds of their people. We begin and start, as you rightly said, Marcus, with one man, one vote, free press, and uh, the opportunity to say whatever you want to say about whoever. Mm. And that you cannot do in China. If you do it, you do it with greater limitation. Does that make the Chinese unhappy? Not necessarily, because they're enjoying a better life, and they've got a kind of understanding with their government. You continue to develop China in the way you have done and we'll give you the benefit of the doubt because let me best answer the story Mark the, the point you're making Marcus with something that cropped up when Jeremy Paxman was in China can I just tell this brief story yes yes go ahead yes Paxman was in China for the Olympic Games and he was looking for the the secondary stories not who won the hundred meters he was looking what could he learn about China today and I think this was, was it 2012? Uh, the, and he the, had the, the, the Beijing Olympics now. Yeah. 2008. Oh, 2008. He had an interview one evening with three prominent female entrepreneurs, well-dressed, well-spoken, all in English. And he was just discussing life in politics. He obviously had a priority. And he said to them at one stage, but you haven't got the freedom to get rid of your government. And there was a pause and they looked and they laughed nervously. He said, well, why would we want to get rid of our government? It's done such a good job for us. Now, this sounds a bit naive because there are people in prison in China for uh, attacking the, the premier, the, 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 the president, Xi Jinping. Hmm. Um, there are people who do not have the freedoms that we have, but they have a lot of other freedoms and a quality lifestyle. And we shouldn't assume that what we've got is necessarily the better. I'll make this last point, Marcus, mm. and then come back at me. I don't have a problem. Okay. Um, the Chinese um, have reached where they are, not to jettison it, in order to become more like us. They're not interested in becoming more like us. Their society may evolve with more similarities with what we've got. They're, they're looking at where they've come from, not what the British have got. Well, you've just explained there very briefly, you touched on people being put in prison for things that we would consider 
certainly not uh, prisonable offences. And at the moment, there hasn't been that much coverage in the West of this story. I th um, I'm going to refer now to the Uyghur Muslims and the situation there. There was a film about it on Newsnight one night last year, and there was a discussion about it on Majid Nawaz's program on LBC two weeks ago. But it's not something that's been covered in the mainstream press to any great extent in this country. And the situation there with the Uyghur Muslims is you've got Xinjiang, which is four times the size of Germany. And there are 90 compounds across China where at least one million people, Uyghur Muslims, are in them. And getting accurate information about what's going on there is quite difficult. But what we do know is that the U.S. federal authority recently seized a shipment of products made from human hair believed to have been taken from the Muslims in these labor camps. And the Customs and Border Protection officials said that 13 tons, that's 11.8 metric tons, of weaves and other hair products worth an estimated $800,000 were in the shipment. And China is also accused of harvesting human organs from persecuted groups in the country. The China Tribunal, a group that's investigating the organ harvesting, said in a tense meeting of the UN Human Rights Council that the Chinese government was taking hearts, kidneys, lungs, and skin from groups including Uyghur Muslims and members of the Falun Gong. And for many years, Xinjiang has harbored Muslim extremists who've been responsible for considerable violence in the province. China has dealt with terrorists by arrest and imprisonment, but they found that that just gave the terrorists access to more terrorists and they became more militant as a result. The militant underground grew inside prison when it was meant to have the exact opposite effect. Prison did more harm than good in some respects. Then the terrorists came to Tiananmen Square. They knifed Chinese citizens. And what China didn't want was a Chechnya within its own borders. And they decided to act. And the action they've taken um, it has been condemned in the West, but without knowing the complete story. As I say, coverage in the mainstream media has been very, very limited. But my questions to you on this are, what evidence is there that the one million people in those 90 concentration camps are Muslim terrorists? And aware as I am of how the Chinese government treats and oppresses its Christian population, I'm tempted not to take what they say about them being terrorists at face value. That's, that's a fair point, and you're quite right to say I want proof before I reach any final decisions. I think what is generally agreed is that Xinjiang has been a home of violence. There was a very, has been a very strong separatist element within Xinjiang, and there was a lot of violence, and the Chinese dealt with it firmly and arrested people and put them either in prison, some of them were executed. What they found was putting people in prison, like we found when we were dealing with some extremists here in the UK, merely produced more terrorists because they spent all their time together, they were talking together. It was a recruiting ground and the Chinese realized that they weren't making a serious um, progress with regard to eliminating violence in Xinjiang. They weren't going to tolerate it. They couldn't tolerate it. No government ever tolerates violence on its streets. But they had to find a different way of dealing with it. The way they've approached it is revolutionary and for many people is too harsh. The Chinese said to themselves, we're not going to have a more violence and more production of terrorists simply by putting these people in prisons and they couldn't solve it by putting them in separate prisons. So they decided on a fundamental, uh, a very fundamental policy of changing the mindset 
of the Uyghur terrorists in the hope that they'd be able to change the mindset of the Uyghur population as a whole. Um, it's harsh. Um, it's been by and large successful. Violence has been reduced, but it's been at the expense of human rights. Exactly what that expense is, you know, we're not quite sure. There have been stories in the press about the harsh line taken by the um, Chinese that it's um, the, the pe some people are dealt with extremely uh, firmly in the re detention areas. Other people undergo a more generalized life uh, uh, atmosphere where they are educated rather than um, dealt with uh, by prison. But does this, um, not answer, does this answer the question about how do we know that a million is a very, very large number of people? What evidence have we really got that these people are terrorists? Well, first of all, we don't. We don't. We don't. What we can, we, we, we have no, the Chinese are not putting out much information and much of the information that's coming out to the West is piecemeal and, main, and has not been tested. So verifiable evidence. But I'd say three things. First of all, the Chinese did share experiences with other countries, America, Britain and others, about their problems they had with the Muslim nationalists in Xinjiang. They weren't quiet about it. On the, on, on the contrary, they exchanged information. I read about it. I only read about it in the Western press, but I have, but I have good reason to believe it's true. They were all sharing information because they didn't want Muslim terrorists crossing borders from one country to another. So there was a great awareness in the West of what was happening. But once the Chinese went to the stage of re-education camps, that's their name, not mine, once they went to the stage of re-education camps, the reporting in the West changed fundamentally. And you won't hear much now about what went on in Chechnya under the Russians or what went on under the Muslims. Under, sorry about that phone. That's all right. You're a busy man. Uh, <laughs> no, it's the wife downstairs. It's not the That's Chinese it. government, is it? No, no, they're listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> I might get carried away or they might take my hair. No, um, so uh, once this hardline approach was taken, it has been disregarded completely by the West as an offense of human rights. And I don't think that's the whole story. I'm not pretending that the harsh line the Chinese have taken is one that I can live with comfortably, but there's much, much more to it than the simple assault on human rights. And if I can just say this on this point, Marcus, China is 1.4 billion people and the numbers in the camps are meant to be 1 million so that reduces it to 1.3 billion but what you don't hear about China is that there are police roaming the streets of the main cities arresting people throwing them into prison the Chinese aren't living under a dictatorship of deprivation they're, they're living under a dictatorship of authoritarian control which limits political freedoms. I agree that. But it's not uh, the kind of um, harsh dictatorship that we associated with the Soviet Union. And if I can just give you a couple of facts just to yeah. exactly exemplify the point I'm making, and this is information that's widely available. There is something called the Edelman Index. It's a survey carried out by the American company and they do it annually, and they found out that in the terms of people's contentment with their government, 
they found the Chinese were top of the list by a large majority. They were first, and the American people, by and large, their number was 15. What mm. they did, exactly how they went about getting answers to the questions, I'm not sure. But there's another compelling statistic as well. Bearing in mind that people here want to believe that China's a miserable place with anybody who opens their mouth being arrested and flung into prison. Last year, 134 million Chinese tourists came out of China and 134 million went home. Mm. Now, you reasonably expect that if some of them were as unhappy in China as the West would like us to believe the Chinese generally are, some of them would have been knocking on the doors claiming asylum. And if they did, they would have been receiving very popular treatment by the White House and number 10 Downing Street. But it hasn't happened. Well, and what you're saying happened. in that sense is very true because we've got numerous, many, many thousands of Chinese students in this country at any one time. And we don't hear that many examples of many claiming asylum for political reasons in this country. So there is a lot of truth in what you're saying there. But I think there may be another element to what is going on in Xinjiang because China has ambitions to create a new Silk Road through China into Africa. And Xinjiang is important to that if you look at the route it takes um, in, in, the, um, in, the, in that end of the country, so to speak, in the west of China. And what the Chinese government doesn't want, it seems to me, is any political unrest along that new Silk Road they're trying to create. Is that an important element to it? Well, it's partly what you call the Silk Road. It's also what's called Belt and Road, which is the Chinese, people call it the new imperialism, but it's the Chinese making available enormous loans to a large number of governments to enable them to promote their own economic development. That's the Chinese explanation for it. They loan them the money, they build roads, they build highways, they build infrastructure. Ah, yes, yes. This brings me on to where I want to go next because... Okay, sorry, I'm, I've jumped I've jumped. Oh, it's, 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 it's fine because this, this is a fascinating area of Chinese development. Right. And China, it seems to me, that whenever I've analysed this or read books on it or what have you, it's not that interested in military might. But what it is seeking to do is buy up all the metals, minerals and oil it can uh, copper for electric and telephone cables, cobalt for mobile phones and jet engines, the basic raw materials of modern life. And for the governments, there are gar gargantuan loans, promises of new roads, railways, hospitals and schools in return for giving Beijing a free and tax-free run at Africa's rich resources of oil, minerals and metals. And for the people, though, um, the ordinary African people who haven't to work in these conditions, the, the, it's, it's wretched for them. Um, miserable as they are, it's better than the near starvation they would other, otherwise face. Now, Zambia, let's take that as an example. The big prizes in Zambia, and that's copper. Uh, there's also Sudan for the oil, Angola for oil, um, Sudan again for metals as well. But as I say, these working conditions are horrendous. They're dangerous. They're full of dirt, squalor. But China has created all of the economic advantages of empire without any of the political responsibility that comes with it in the way we associate historic empires, such as the British Empire. Now, to use that example of Zambia, it has cancelled Zambia's debts. It has eased Zambian exports to China. It has established a special economic zone in the Copper Belt. It offered to build a sports stadium, schools, a hospital, uh, an anti-malaria center, as well as providing scholarships and dispatching experts to help with agriculture. But to quote the late Michael Satter in Zambia in 2007, 
he was um, a, a rather outspoken opposition leader at that time. And he said, in his words, we want the Chinese to leave and the old colonial rulers to return. They exploited our natural resources too, but at least they took good care of us. They built schools, taught us their language and brought us the British civilization. At least Western capitalism has a human face. The, only, the Chinese are only out to exploit us. And that, that was what Michael Satter said in 2007. Um, Self-flagellation is very fashionable in Britain at the moment with all, all the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the pulling down of statues. And we, we'll come on to this a bit later in a discussion, perhaps. But when Satter finally became president in 2011, and he was dead within a couple of years of that, he didn't really act on his words of 2007 I just quoted. China's influence was so great by that stage. So is it not the case then, Graham, that China has created all the economic advantages of empire, yet without the political responsibility? It's a very fair question. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, let's start, first of all, with what the Chinese are saying, and then we'll come on and look at the evidence. First of all, what the Chinese are saying is summed up in a phrase, a win-win situation. China's and, that, and that's a phrase uh, expressed by Xi Jinping in explaining what their policy is towards all the surrounding countries and beyond. Because we're talking about a very large area. I mean, the Americans by and large have given up on Africa because China's development plans in Africa have been so much bigger that they can't even begin to compete. The starting point is the Chinese saying, we want to help you develop because if you develop, we develop and we all have peace and prosperity. This is not the China of uh, 40, 50 years ago, which stoked up small communist parties in lots of overseas countries with the view to creating uh, uh, trouble in those countries, which would bring about some kind of communist takeover. That that that's, doesn't feature anybody's criticism of China today. What the Chinese say they're doing, and what I believe they're doing, and I'll comment in a moment on what you say, is helping those countries to develop their own resources in the belief that greater stability in the world comes from that purpose. Some in the West see this as a debt trap, that China is stuffing these recipient countries with money and when they can't pay, China grabs assets. And there's one, uh, uh, op one case which many critics of China use to decry this whole Belt and Road Initiative and it is Sri Lanka where in Sri Lanka, China lent money, it built uh, ports and it built uh, infrastructure and it didn't take off in Sri Lanka and it was a white elephant. And the, the Sri Lankans were annoyed with China and China was annoyed with the Sri Lankans and also with their own people who they regarded as having negotiated too hard. They wanted to win the negotiation too much and they didn't think more importantly of what was best for the recipient nation. That apart, you hear increasing numbers of appreciation. It's interesting that the critical comment you took was one from 2007, but there was one I read in the papers only last week by a Nigerian saying that as a result of Chinese investment in Nigeria, there are many, many more jobs for Nigerians. Now, but when, you, when you say jobs, are they, well, I, I've read many harrowing examples of them even not taking very basic safety precautions for the people because human life amongst the African workforce in the mines and when they're digging is seen as very, very expendable and it's effectively put up with it or lose your job. It's worse than 
the Victorians, uh, the Victorians, the, the Welsh mines in the Victorian era were luxury by comparison to what they're experiencing in Africa right now. So there is that element of it for spending a comparatively small amount of money. They could make these mines a lot safer and yet they're not doing so. Well, we're not sure. I know that's what you're saying, and I, I'm happy to be put under pressure on this one. But um, from, from my knowledge and my experience, what was said by the Nigerian was in relation to the fact that more jobs had been created as a result of Chinese investment for Nigerians, not for Chinese. But there's another point to it as well. We're talking about third world and we're talking about areas where attention to uh, worker safety is not as high as it has been here in the UK. And here in the UK, it's only been a recent development of the last 40 or 50 years because you know as well as I do how bad the mines were and how many industrial accidents there were. Nothing as bad as some of the third world countries. But China's purpose is not to go out in those countries, exploit them, grab the materials, bring them home and leave the people destitute. It doesn't make sense for China to do that. What they have said was, greater stability comes from the world if we actually assist in the development for what on what is best for the recipient country. There's going to be problems in all countries, I know. Um, it's, there's a period of adjustment, there's a period of Chinese working alongside non-Chinese, but there's many examples of it working well. And you don't hear of a flood of third world countries making really stunning criticisms. Nothing's appeared at the United Nations. Nothing's appeared. But would the they World dare? Would they dare? Would they dare? Well, you know, if it's not there, it's not there. You can say it's a reign of terror and that China's Belt and Road Initiative is just a heavy-handed dictatorship throughout the world. But Marcus, I don't think it can be like that. It can't be sustained like that you would have third world reporters and journalists who are very eager to pick up bad news about China would be scouring the length and breadth of Africa for terrible stories and make those stories the centerpiece. Well, Peter uh, Hitchens did do that. He, he did do that. Peter Hitchens went out there in uh, 2008. He went uh, to yeah. Zambia and he said that it was, he, had a, he, had, he was in a car with a photographer and two other people and he was surrounded by workers and they were trying to open the door to the car and he said they were very lucky they didn't get a, a puncture as they sped off because he said these were African workers, realised he was a journalist, wanted him out of there and they, they would have killed him if, if they hadn't managed to drive off and he says thank goodness they didn't have that puncture because um, that would have been a game over for him. But they were absolutely terrified of him writing in a British newspaper about the conditions he saw they were working in um, because that would mean that they would lose their jobs and the, the, the small amount of money they made each day would be gone. They were terrified of the truth coming out. And that was in, what, 2007, I think. Well, that's what Hitchens says. He was able to tell, to read into the minds of the people surrounding his car and said they didn't want him to write badly because it would damage their own job prospects. It's a bit of a leap. It's also the case that many people have gone to, 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 to Africa just looking for the worst aspects and thereby humiliated. I think it has to be a more detached judgment. Be cautious about accepting these allegations of bad behavior because they are the, argue, they are the tool that people will use to discredit China generally. This China policy, um, I, I'm linking this perhaps wrongly with Xinjiang for a moment. But many of the recipients of these countries have been Muslim countries as well. 
Um, and coming back to the Xinjiang thing, uh, people will say, well, the Muslim countries will receive money in order to buy off protest about what's happening in Xinjiang. You know, the conspiracy theory can work and work and work if you want it to. But at the end of the day, you have to ask for stable, uh, uh, reliable, independent, objective, critical comment. And I wonder whether it is if you rely on somebody from 2007 or you rely on just Peter Hitchens, who's got a history of negativism about anything to do with China. I'm not saying it's plain sailing. I'm not saying there aren't tensions and frustrations. But overall, there's never been an example of any country anywhere in the world that's put money into countries on such a scale without it being backed up by one soldier, one naval vessel, or any examples of arrogant um, lifestyle on the part of the outside country. So my guess is uh, it's going to work. It's going to work big time, long term. But there'll be a lot of time before people will come to accept it as being the way forward because they don't want to believe that China has got this um, sense of uh, general uh, interest in the well-being of other people. There is an assumption that everything about China is exploitative and self-interested. Self and that's for me, is part of the mistaken propaganda about China, but only time will tell whether I'm right or the critics are right. I'm going to ask you now something very current, and it's in relation to what we've seen with regards to Huawei's involvement in the development of the 5G network here in Britain. And we saw yesterday the government announced that there, there's going to be a sort of seven-year untangling process and that Huawei are no longer welcome to be part of the development of 5G in this country. And it's going to come a great financial expense to this country because we got to a certain point already in the development of those 5G networks of which Huawei was an integral part. Is this not the case, as we've been lent on by Donald Trump's administration in America, uh, we've effectively been held over a barrel if you allow Huawei to get involved in 5G, you can't have favorable trade terms with America. Is that really what's gone on here? Yeah, I'm sure. I, 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 I'll just step back a little bit and say prior to the decision yesterday by the British government, there was a lot in the papers earlier on, after Johnson took, uh, became prime minister, of his tilt to China, of his tilt towards China. He looked to China under the freedom that Brexit gave to engage in trade deals with China, trade deals with America, and this would be part of the great new future that a post-Brexit Britain would have. And I genuinely, he think, he thought that China would be able to play a significant role in the infrastructure in Britain. I'm not just talking about nuclear power, I'm also talking about roads and trains. The Chinese have got the most enormous success story in China in terms of building infrastructure, probably too much infrastructure because some of the airports are quiet, some of the roads are unused. But put that to one side, what Britain wanted was a closer relationship with China, an extension of the golden era commenced by Osborne and Cameron. But Trump has his own agenda. And I think that the British just had to concede What's interesting is that there's not one piece of any evidence that Huawei has ever engaged in the kind of dark conspiratorial conspiracies that have surrounded every piece of reporting on this issue. 
here in Britain and in America. Trump, if I can put it to you, Marcus, is in election year. He's having a terrible time. He's decided to make China an electoral issue, and he's hoping he can damage China, not simply because it's an electoral issue, but because China is now challenging America for supremacy as the dominant economic superpower over the next 50 years. And so I think there's, there's another factor at play here as well, because if we were having this conversation just six months ago before the COVID-19 pandemic, it would have looked quite clearly that Donald Trump was on course for re-election in another four-year term. The events of the last uh, four or five months in particular, uh, obviously the, the, the effects of the pandemic in terms of human life lost in America are bad enough, but in terms of unemployment, the cost has been absolutely enormous. And Donald Trump, not only does he obviously not want to lose the election, but he fears losing the election because he loses presidential immunity if he loses the election. And there are various court cases lining up in terms of his behavior and his actions that could see him landed in the dock within a few years of losing that election. So he fears that as well. There is that element to it. And also, in terms of gaining political capital, he is looking for somebody to blame insofar as the pandemic, the cause of it, he needs a bogeyman, so to speak, somebody to blame from outside America for causing all this. And he's looking very much to China. So what we have experienced in Britain with Huawei, I think, is a knock-on consequence of that. However, the other side of the coin is that I think we are going to enter an era, we may already be in this era indeed, where military might is much less important than it once was. And future wars will be fought online in terms of breaking into security systems, breaking into bank accounts, making the internet in any given country grind to a halt, making it impossible for businesses to function because all their Wi-Fi has gone down. That could be the warfare of the next 50 years. So is it therefore, when you've got a potential, you could always argue China, friend or foe, and it's a difficult question to answer because as we've already established, this is, and we've explored this, is a complex relationship. Do we not need to err on the side of caution when it comes to giving China too much access to sensitive networks? Well, the, the choice is confrontation or cooperation. And the path chosen by Trump for electoral reasons, also because he's representative of the American uh, number one economic power in the world, um, is confrontation. He's decided and there are a lot of people in America who want to clip China's wings. They can see China's making progress. They can see it's on its way to outflank the Americans looking 30, 40 years ahead. And they've decided to, now is the time. Actually, I think they've missed the boat. They sh if they were going to take action against China, they should have done it when they were in Vietnam in 1965, when they had a half a million troops. They could have done something. And the fear was that they were going to do something. They didn't. They lost Vietnam and they decided not to take action then. But there is a well-known book going, doing the rounds in, in America today, uh, The Coming War with China. So it's not me just sounding off here on, in my discussions with you. There is a real, very real discussion of the possibility of military action against China. I think it would be disastrous. I don't think the Americans would win. But if I can, yeah. this can lead me on to something because I want to say something about, if I can, is the time to talk about the virus and coronavirus. You brought it up. And of course, what Trump is also doing is seeking to deflect blame for his own mishandling of coronavirus in his country 
by blaming the Chinese where the coronavirus thing happened. Now, something went terribly wrong in China. I, 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 that, that is absolutely the case. And there were divisions within China as to whether this uh, virus that was reported in Wuhan was as serious as the local doctors thought, or whether it and was the beginning of a pandemic, or whether the reaction, a bit like Chernobyl in, a, in, in, in this old Soviet Union, was to try and limit the uh, discussion about the pandemic because the feeling was that it would damage China and anyhow the predictions of long-term damage were exaggerated. In the event, the critics got it wrong. There was a serious problem in China and China eventually got it right, but to begin with, it was wrong. And of course, Trump is using that when he talks about the Kung, the Kung Fu flu. Uh, he's looking to blame China in an election year for all the problems he's having for coronavirus. No question about it. And the Chinese will be looking very, very thoroughly at what went wrong to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And it's a very big question as to how something like that did happen. So th that's an issue that the Chinese, I'm sure, will be taking on board. But it's going to become a bigger issue as Trump runs up towards November, because it's going to be, he's got to explain away the mishandling by himself of the, uh, of the question of the growing numbers of people still suffering from the pandemic, as indeed has been the case here. But that's the subject for a future committee of inquiry. But I just wanted to touch on that. Because I think that China uh, knows that it's going to be criticised, is being criticised, and it will have to make explanations. Mm. Just one thing I came across recently, Marcus, on this point, if I can just elaborate on it. Yes, go ahead. There's a book I'm waiting to receive delivery of, written by the editor of Lancet, in which he says that British doctors and British scientists didn't contact the Chinese when word was getting out that this was a serious pandemic. Now the mm. Chinese had everybody in their world contacting them to find out more about it for sure, because this was a new experience and people wanted it, uh, examples of it. I don't know why the allegations been made, it must be true, that the British themselves were slow to make inquiries of China as to what exactly was happening. They've criticized China for being slow and China will have to deal with that criticism if in fact they can show that there was a paralysis of power making decisions in January uh, in China. But it's also curious to me whether we took sufficient action here in this country because our numbers are very high, but that's a subject for a future. Uh, yes, I, I think the post-mortem into the UK government's handling of the pandemic is going to go on and on well into the future, and the blame game is really going to start before too much longer. It's going to be ramped up a couple of notches. But what I do fear in terms of things being ramped up in the United States is that we know the coarseness of Donald Trump's rhetoric even on a good day, but as November's election gets closer and closer, what I fear, Graham, is that it's much easier to get into a conflict than it is to get out of one. And China, in terms of its cultural attitudes, doesn't take kindly to slights or any perceived offence. And Donald Trump is not known for his diplomacy or his moderation in language. And as his election campaign gets more and more desperate, as I think it will, I can see an escalation of tensions between the USA and China in the months ahead that won't be easy to put right, if you know what I mean. 
No, I, I think I think you're you're right. The tensions are going to rise. It's very much a thing focused on the next election. But I would also say this: that uh, relations between America and China under a Biden presidency aren't going to be plain sailing. Mm. Um, there are many Democrats who are unhappy with China, and that there may be some continuity of feeling between bad feeling between um, Republican and Democrat that will make relations between China and America difficult for some time to come. Mm. But the question is how you approach it, how you handle it. As I said, I don't believe China's becoming a superpower. I don't, it's not got one soldier outside China. It's not got one vessel sailing outside China, whereas China itself is surrounded by 52 American military bases. Who is threatening who is a very good question. But the mm. Chinese don't want trouble. They don't want uh, uh, turbulence. They don't want military confrontations. Why? Because it takes away from their primary goal, which is to continue to bring growth and prosperity to the Chinese. The Chinese aren't millionaires. They've got some millionaires there. The average um, income levels, I'm not quite sure of my facts. I've got to dig this up, but I think it's something like $8,000 a year. It's not enormous, but it's enormous when you look across 1.4 billion people. And that's the priority for China. It's, it's individual, um, uh, 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 individual relaxed feeling coupled with prosperity and stability. The Chinese know they need to meet, make, keep their people contented, motivated and hardworking. And, and that, that is definitely how it is in China today. And finally on China then, the situation currently in Hong Kong. Now, we have seen in recent weeks how the agreement ended into in Britain and when power was handed over in 1997. We are seeing how the Chinese have gone back on what was agreed with Britain in terms of protecting the, the, the two systems philosophy they had. And we have seen in recent weeks how even the very younger schoolchildren in Hong Kong have had lessons on what they now can and can't say and now can and can't do. And it's been made clear that certain forms of protest are no longer permissible. And we've seen people with face masks on holding signs up with blank pieces of paper because they're not permitted to write on them anymore. Is there any, okay, we are limited in what we can do with respect of Hong Kong. And there's no question of any military action or anything like that being taken, no question of that whatsoever. Is there anything whatsoever we can do to honour the British commitment to the people of Hong Kong beyond what has already been said in terms of giving Hong Kong people British citizenship, or do we just have to accept this as a national humiliation in a sense? Well, I, th I think the day the, that that time was moment has passed. Uh, and I think if you look back at the last six to nine months when Hong Kong was brought to a standstill by very, very strong protests, some of them very violent, there was no criticism at all from anybody in Britain or anybody in America. You saw violence, uh, people uh, hacking into the LegCo building, very provocative, very violent. Not all of them, there was a lot of peaceful protest as well. But all people were hoping was that this protest would lead China to moderate its political views in relation to the long-term future of Hong Kong. And that's pie in the sky for China. If I can just say very briefly, border disputes between India and China, but no invasion of India. Mm. Problems in Tibet, problems in Xinjiang, problems with Taiwan, problems in Hong Kong. China is very, very focused on maintaining the integrity 
of the geographical political unity of China. Not one Chinese soldier outside China, but China very committed to maintaining the strength and integrity of China as a whole. And having sat back and seen what happened in Hong Kong over the last six months, I think they just, uh, the hope they had for one country, two systems, which was a genuine hope, and they hoped it would continue for a long time, has been undermined by the, what they perceive as the hypocrisy of Trump, the hypocrisy of Johnson, wringing their hands in frustration at the lack of democracy in, China, in, in, in Hong Kong, when for hundreds of years, the British were in control of Hong Kong and never went down the route of universal suffrage. So is this, just a, is this just a case then that the people of Hong Kong need to just accept their Chinese identity and move on? Is that effectively what you're saying? Well, remember, all the protesters are not all of the Hong Kongers. Uh, there are many people in Hong Kong who didn't want the protests, wanted stability and continuity as well. So I think what's going to happen here is China's taken a strong hand, and I think the likelihood of future protest is minimal. But I think you will still find a growth of prosperity in Hong Kong. And recently, for example, uh, the action, uh, you talk about Huawei, but the action of HSBC Bank was to focus its long-term future on China and Hong Kong rather than on withdrawing. Mm. And famously, the British company AstraZeneca, at the time Huawei was being forced out of China, the leadership of the AstraZeneca, the largest FTSE 500 company, said we want to deepen our investment in China. Mm. So I think when you look at it, businessmen will take one view about China, politicians will take another. But I think the politicians, and I blame Patton in particular here, because what he should have come out and said was, trouble on the streets is going to make a long-term future for the people of Hong Kong more and more difficult. Instead of which, the West rather encouraged it they fanned the flames of discontent in the mistaken belief that China would change. China so what, what you're getting at then is it looks like you're predicting what economic prosperity for Hong Kong, but perhaps at the expense of individual and personal freedoms. The freedoms that people have to do now what they did six months ago, those have gone. Mm. Those have gone. And people will say, well, there you are. It shows China to be a tyrant and a dictatorship. But I wonder... How many countries would have stood by without bringing in the troops? Look what happened here in England a few weeks ago when one statue was pulled to the ground. And you could see people on the right demanding a retribution against the people who were daring to do, take such action. Whereas on the streets of Hong Kong, it was much more violent, much more militant. Albeit, you may say, these people were motivated by a desire for democracy. But there was a little bit of hypocrisy there because the British who had controlled Hong Kong for all those years wasn't too keen on granting too much democracy anywhere in the empire unless it was forced to. And here it hoped that they could embarrass, even humiliate China. And China doesn't do humiliation very well. Well, this is a China, the whole subject of China and its developments and all the various aspects of it. It's a fascinating discussion. We could go into much, much more depth on that, but time is against us, I'm afraid. I want to move on now to your work in so far as uh, anti-Semitism training and everything you've done there. Now, you're Jewish, you're a man of the centre-left, and a year ago, almost to the day, you were suspended by the Jewish labour movement after you repeatedly flouted its decision to halt anti-Semitism training. And you've delivered a, tra a training to the Welsh Labour Conference in Labour 2019, 
and later on to the Welsh Assembly Group, uh, the Labour Group in the Welsh Assembly, that is, and First Minister Mark Drakeford. And you received a letter of thanks from Mr Drakeford, who is on the core minister wing of the Labour Party, although he was never elected by the Welsh people in that sense. And action was taken after details emerged of plans for you to speak at the Aberconwy Labour Party because Leah Levine of Jewish Voice for Labour was also speaking. And there is a conflict between the two groups. Can you just tell us a little bit about what actually happened there? Yeah, I can. Um, let me first say that I, I have very much sympathy for the Jewish Labour Movement. It's where I started. I believe in them. I think they have worked hard. They're a very good organization. They produce good speakers. I was one of them, and I hope one day to continue to, to become again a speaker for JLM, because I think on the, on the issue of anti-Semitism, um, they, they have good experience, and uh, I would like to continue doing under the JLM banner what I've been doing for a long time uh, under the banner and also uh, as an individual. I did enjoy my time in Wales at the Welsh Labour Conference in successive years. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, we have to wait the outcome of the commission that's going to be reporting within the next few weeks, which is going to trigger a tremendous surge of re-examination about the history of anti-Semitism. Where does it come from? How does it uh, seem to be something that cannot be ever uh, eliminated? It seems to have been with us for a long time, although most recently in this most aggressive way. Um, but I've always been of the left. I've always been uh, uh, my own father's political experience, and he was not a political person. His parents weren't political at all. He was politicized entirely by Mosley. Mm. What took my father to the left in politics was the Mosley bruisers on the streets of the East End of London. He, together with a lot of other Jews, became very strong and active because they, they looked, and eventually it was only the Communist Party in, the, uh, in London at that time who really provided confrontational um, policy of taking on the fascists and knocking them around a bit, I can tell you, especially mm. in 1936. Yeah. So the whole issue of anti-Semitism is something that has always interested me. It's very much at the heart of my own development. But I'm also conscious that there's a lot of people out there who may be perceived to be anti-Semites who aren't. Mm. People who have stumbled into the wrong thinking or the wrong ways, maybe as a result of pressure from church, a belief that Jesus was killed by Jews, and all the other myths that have gone on and on and on. Get yourself well, in front of people, and that's the best way, and that's what I like doing. Well, we're recording this just as the Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, and his deputy, Angela Rayner, they've received the draft report into anti-Semitism from the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And the fact that the Labour Party was investigated by them is actually quite extraordinary if you, if you, when you think about it and analyse how that happened. But I knew there was a problem going back maybe four or five years now, yeah, about that, when Ed Miliband was still Labour leader. And I made a comment on Twitter criticizing an aspect of it, of one of his policies. It's irrelevant now what that was about. It had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, but I criticized one of his policies. And a leftist came to me and um, he said, oh yes, I'm not gonna defend him. I'm not gonna defend the Jew Miliband, as he put it. And I thought, whoa, I thought those days in British politics were long gone. And there it was, somebody of the left 
hiding behind an anonymous account, making a reference to the Jew Miliband. A lot of people wouldn't have even known that Ed Miliband was Jewish at that stage. This was before all the, uh, all the press about his father and everything else came out. But then I think back, I was covering the, um, the Peterborough by-election last year when um, Fiona Onasania, who'd been in prison, and she, was, she had a recall petition and she was up for re-election, and it was in the autumn of last year, I recall reading some highly unsavory comments from members of her campaign at that point as well. So we await the details of this report, and Sakia Starmer and Angela Rayner have seen the draft copy. Do you think, based on your own experience, that this is a case of a few bad eggs, or is there institutional anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? The experience of the Labour Party under Corbyn makes you think that it's deep-seated. Hmm. Whether I use the word institutional or not, that's a loaded word, but it's deep-seated. I mean, I've been in meetings in my own party and sensed that criticisms are being made, which are really have a, 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 an undercurrent of anti-Semitism. And I, it's, a, it's a great sadness because the Labour Party was always the party of uh, protest, the party of uh, working class solidarity. And so many of the people in the 50s that were prominent in the Labour Party, Sidney Silverman in particular, was so well regarded for the causes that he undertook and promoted. And anti-Semitism was very, very limited at, the, at that time. But I think there's a big problem. And I think it's going to, I think you have to distinguish the um, uh, anti-Semites who need to be confronted, need to make it, make it quite clear to them, not so much always in insulting them, but by dismantling their arguments. Eventually, anti-Semites will reveal themselves. They'll say something stupid like the person did about Miliband. They'll show their true colors. And you can then draw a distinction between them and other people who may have some suspicions about Israel, may worry about the fact that Jews seem to be more commercially successful than others. It's not the case, but that's how it appears. Why is Philip Green in the papers more than other non-Jewish uh, capitalists who have got taken the wrong path? There's a lot of that kind of thing about. But I've always felt you can isolate the anti-Semites and then work on the middle ground and persuade them that the root of anti-Semitism is not the way to go. And that well, we, we had this example in Wales of Jenny Rathbone, um, the Labour Assembly member, and she said that she got into a lot of trouble for this. She said that the security fears of Jewish people was in their own heads and that Jewish people needed to work harder for peace in the Middle East. She said that at a meeting in 2017. When those comments emerged into the wider public sphere in early 2019, she was suspended from the Labour Assembly Group for six weeks and then was let back in by Mark Drakeford. Is she an anti-Semite? I don't know enough about the specific uh, examples of her. Um, I have to say, when I went to Wales, I did meet with her. I found her a pleasant lady, but we were, our conversation was a little bit careful. I didn't get into the essential elements of her own case, I'd be more than happy to do it. Hmm. But I, I, I think that the, there is use. You, you take this Rebecca Long Bailey incident with uh, Maxine Peake and the article and the, the kneel, the, the suggestion that the policeman in uh, America uh, had, 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 perp had received training from the Israeli military police in order to know how to kill people by putting a knee to the neck. 
Mm. You know, that's gratuitous anti-Semitism. That was just thrown into the article to create a, what otherwise was a good article. That jumped out of the print. That made it so aware for of many of us. Many Jews are very aware of anti-Semitism well before non-Jews are, but we can see it coming, we can sniff it. And we have to ensure that we handle anti-Semitism in the right way than, and not the wrong way, because we want to win back the majority of people who may have questions about the Israel or questions about the issue of anti-Semitism without them being part of the hardcore anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist left. I'm well, always that, that's very where, that's yeah, where I'm coming from. Yeah, I'm Sorry. always very aware that you don't change people's minds by telling them they can't say certain things. Um, no. That that doesn't actually change the discourse. But moving on from the Labour Party and in through the prism of wider Welsh society, um, Plaid Cymru founder Saunders Lewis is writing is littered with numerous grotesque examples of anti-Semitism. And it remains an ongoing trait with the party. And as recently as last December's general election, the Plaid Cymru member, Saha Al-Fari, I think that's how you pronounce it, she was suspended from the party days after she appeared in a party election broadcast when it was revealed that she'd been responsible for a number of anti-Semitic social media posts several years earlier. But she has since been allowed back into Plaid Cymru. And it would be wrong to assume that Plaid Cymru has gone to great lengths to distance itself from its past. Now, Saunders Lewis is still widely revered by Plaid Cymru supporters and the wider Welsh nationalist movement in general. They can be very touchy when you raise the subject, but to give you just a sense of perspective, there are 40 Westminster parliamentary seats in Wales. Plaid Cymru holds just four of them. They're all in West and Northwest Wales in the Welsh-speaking heartlands. For the last three general elections, their number of votes um, and the share of the vote has gone down for three general elections in a row. So I keep a sense of perspective about Plaid Cymru's wider support in Wales. It's really not that big, and they don't even come close to winning seats in most of Wales. However, you have something in Wales known as the Krakak, which is this middle-class Welsh-speaking elite that controls most of the levers in the Welsh arts, media, civil service and higher education sectors. And you see a lot of nepotism there. I've written about it at great length. And you've got, you know, in, in the Poncana district of Cardiff, for example, there's a few, a small clique of a few thousand Welsh speakers um, and Welsh nationalists with sympathies to Welsh nationalism. And you see nepotism there, things passing from father to son, various people holding directorships that move from the arts to the media um, and university, university chancellorships and so forth. But they are small in number, yet they have a huge amount of influence over Welsh society. And as I say, they can be very touchy when you talk about Saunders Lewis and his anti-Semitism. They regard it as some kind of minor character flaw, like leaving the toilet seat up after you've used it. But Lewis's writing is littered with grotesque examples of anti-Semitism. A repeated phrase of his is the use of the phrase Hebrew snouts, which sounds absolutely horrible, and indeed it is, which he used when referring to Jewish financiers, and Alfred Mond was a favorite target of his. And Saunders Lewis, he had an affection for the politics of Franco, Salzar, and Petan. Um, Plaid Cymru officially remained neutral during World War II, and of Adolf Hitler himself, Saunders Lewis declared, at once he fulfilled his promise, a promise which was greatly mocked by the London papers months before that to completely abolish the financial strengths of the Jews in the economic life of Germany. 
Now, Plaid Cymru doesn't like to mention or discuss, let alone condemn its own murky past. Indeed, the former party president, as he's known then, he didn't used to call it the leader in those days, the former party president, Lord David Wigley, who will have known Saunders Lewis personally, because Saunders Lewis didn't die until the 1980s, he called for the character assassination of him to end during a 2015 interview, as though Lewis's abhorrent views were a minor footnote in his life in some way. And in 2015, on the 30th anniversary of Saunders Lewis's death, David Wigley unveiled a plaque commemorating Lewis outside the house in Penarth where he lived in later life. And as I say, Saunders Lewis is still widely revered by the crack act. His anti-Semitism is talked about as this minor character flaw. This is just one example amongst crack act society and Welsh nationalist society. Is there a sense among not only that, but other sections of society that anti-Semitism is somehow the lesser racism? Well, anti-Semitism is racism. It's, it's, it's a prejudice against people because of their, their uh, physical complexion or their historical association. It's, it's, it's a smear and it's a very dangerous smear. And I think what we know is if you don't stand up to it, we know where it leads to. Mm. Uh, it's the concentration camps. Uh, I tweeted yesterday, I saw a picture of a three-year-old boy who'd been taken into Auschwitz. And within four months, he was uh, killed, which meant that he probably went holding the hand of his mother towards the showers in the belief that they were going to be cleansed with water, but in fact were gassed to their death. And this boy looks just like my grandson. And it reminds me, I, 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 I'm Jewish to the core. I'm not a very religious Jew but I'm Jewish to the core and anti-Semitism really brings me to the boil. Doesn't mean I lose my temper with anti-Semites because that's a different matter. How you persuade people away from anti-Semitism is a skill that you have to learn how to develop. But to be aware of it, to be aware of its significance and remember, as I do so often, six million people died for nothing more than they were Jewish. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's, it can reduce you to tears very, very quickly, Marcus. I tell you, it's a very strong motivation for me. And that's why I, I do what I've done for a long time and take the opportunity to get in front of people who've got questions about Jewishness, questions about Israel, questions about politics, and confront them, not with a view to humiliating them unless they're on the very far right but for people uh, to understand how they've got to distance themselves and reject anti-Semitism because it is such an evil illness. And, you know, we're going to hear much more about Black Lives Matter because of what happened to that, uh, uh, to Mr. Floyd in, uh, where was it in, not Cincinnati, in Charlotte, I think. No, not Charlotte. Well, um, wherever, anyway. Wherever it was. Uh, and it's going to resurrect the whole question of the slave trade and um, the fact that <laughs> the British government paid 18 billion, I think it's approximately 18 billion in today's currency in compensation to slave owners. But I'm drifting away a bit. I want to come back to the issue of anti-Semitism. Never, never allow it to pass. Always deal with it and handle it as soon as it comes up. Well, we, I'm, I'm glad you say that because 
The other day, Mark Drakeford tweeted in relation to the whole George Floyd thing and what happened to the Edward Colston statue in Bristol. He said, we need to make a, an urgent audit in Wales of our statues and our street names and take action. I tweeted him almost immediately after he put that out. And I said, OK, an easy one for you, Mr. Drakeford. There is a, a major road in Cardiff when the redevelopment of Cardiff Bay happened in the 1990s called Roald Dahl Plus. Oh, and right. I, I said, this is a very easy one, Mr. Drakeford. Are we going to rename Roald Dahl Plus? Because Roald Dahl, whatever ta he lived in Cardiff for much of his life, whatever talent he had as a children's author, and I, you know, I read his stories and I even watched the films when I was a kid, he was without doubt an anti-Semite. And I said to Drakeford in a tweet, I said, this is a very easy place to start. We stop revering Roald Dahl in Cardiff and we rename Roald Dahl Plus. And I think if Roald Dahl had made similar comments about black people, for example, then he would not be revered in the way he is. It's like, I think there, there was a commemoration a few years ago. It might have been what, I think it was what would have been Roald Dahl's 100th birthday. There was a huge commemoration in the center of Cardiff where people dressed up as his characters and they had a big carnival. I'm sorry, this is not a man we should be celebrating. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, more Marcus. I think that there's a big audit is going to take place on the back of Black Lives Matter, and it's going to lead to a rewriting of history. And there is a, a historian I've seen on television quite a lot recently. His name is Osunoga, and he's doing the most wonderful research into the slave trade and revealing lots of relevant information. And it is part, it is our past. There's no question, and many people will have better benefited uh, from the money that was um, granted to good causes by people whose income had been earned through the slave trade. And there are very big moral questions to do with that. And that's why when you talk about Roald Dahl, it's the same point. Enjoy his, his works, enjoy his plays. He was a clever writer. But if a large part of Roald Dahl's uh, popularity and fame is to do with his association with anti-Semitism, then you have to ask yourself the question, what's more important, approving of his plays or confronting his anti-Semitism? It's a big issue that's going to come back to us as a result of the uh, effect of the death of George Floyd. Now, I think I have demonstrated, and my track record suggests this, I loathe and despise anti-Semitism with every fibre of my being. However, I might criticize Benjamin Netanyahu in the same way I might criticize any leader, such as Donald Trump or Emmanuel Macron or Boris Johnson or anybody. At what point does legitimate criticism of Israel become an act of anti-Semitism? Well, I'm a critic of Israel on, on, on things. I, I didn't join the Labour Party to see the position in Gaza. I'm very unhappy with the two wars on Gaza. Not that I don't feel the Palestinians have been badly led with bad leaders who shooting rockets off invites a reaction from the Israelis. But I don't believe in the annexation I don't, of, of the West Bank. I don't believe in Netanyahu. And I'm a critic of Israel, but there isn't a trace of anti-Semitism in my comments about Israel. It's a democratic assessment of what Israel's government is doing today. And gov uh, Israel's government is doing what it's doing today because it represents the people of Israel, which is a combination, as we know, of, 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 of individuals. It's mainly Jewish, but it's not exclusively Jewish. That's uh, another issue to do with nationality. But there are many people 
who will resort to criticism of Israel as a, a, a as an expression of anti-Semitism, and we've seen it. The, you've mentioned Amond. Uh, um, you you mentioned the Rothschilds. You talk about the international financial conspiracy focused around the creation of the state of Israel. These are dangerous tropes. So by all means, have an objective criticism of Israel that you could apply to any other country, but don't single out Israel because of its Jewish origins, unless you're extremely balanced in your assessments and your comments, because very quickly, as Maxine Peake did, you can allow a gratuitous comment about Jews and Jewish history in Israel very easily to be interpreted as an element of anti-Semitism. Don't well, go down that route. Let's make the criticism of Israel because Israel, like any other country in the world, is entitled to be criticized, but don't smear it with anti-Semitism. Well, for example, on the December the 27th, 2008, Israel launched Operation Cast Lead a massive 22-day military assault on the Gaza Strip. And a year afterwards, the smoke from the white phosphorus bombardment was still fuming. Now, we condemn Syria for using chemical weapons and Assad, but should we not call what went on in Israel on that occasion for what it is and the use of chemical weapons against the Palestinians? 1,400 were killed. Most of them were civilians. And, for example, Israel as well, I think it was a year or two later, because there wasn't enough electricity for air conditioning in nearby Tel Aviv, they cut off electricity to Gaza. Qatar intervened, and that affected 1.7 million Palestinians in Gaza. Now, there are people, for me pointing that out, would say, ah, you're an anti-Semite. I haven't even mentioned Judaism in that comment. I am holding the Israeli government to the same standards of which I have held Assad. So, there is a line. Where is that line that you can cross when, when, when talking about these things and pointing out things that should not be happening? You sniff it, you hear it, you feel it, you know it's there. You know there's a distinction, Marcus, between genuine, balanced, objective criticism of the state of Israel and anti-Semitism on the other side. Hmm. What is said and how it's said and the links that are made. And there's another aspect to it as well. By all means, criticize Israel, but criticize other countries for doing what they do in the set to the same extent as well. Mm. How mm. many protests were there outside the Saudi Arabian embassy over this killing of this journalist? And is Saudi Arabia such a democracy? Are people free, etc.? No, the, the, the feeling about the criticism of Israel is that it's disproportionate. Mm. That more focus is on the bad side of Israel than is on the bad side of other countries. And I'll just leave you with some thoughts about Israel. I always make this point when I'm speaking. I'm speaking to an audience, maybe 70, 80 people, and there's bound to be some gay people in the audience because that's the normal makeup of a political audience. And I say to them, would you prefer to be a gay in Saudi Arabia, Syria, or Iraq, or Israel, which has the biggest gay pride march of all? Mm. I said, how many prime ministers and presidents of Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Iraq, and Iran have been put into prison compared, say, with Israel, which has the rule of law and where Olmert and Netanyahu now himself is accountable in the courts of Israel. This is an aspect of Israeli life that should be praised and encouraged. It's not a justification for the phosphorus and it's not a justification for annexation of the West Bank. 
Hmm. So make the criticisms of Israel objectively on the failings of Israel. But once you sniff, once you sense there's an element of anti-Semitism about it, then you jump to the fore and point it out because you can't have people conceding, trying to, 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 to legitimize criticism of Israel with expressions of anti-Semitism. It's something we have to do the whole time. And it's something that goes back a long time in history much to do even with the Balfour Declaration. I can't go down that route now, maybe another time, Marcus. Mm. But the whole history of uh, soft, soft anti-Semitism, hard anti-Semitism, and the extent to which even today there's anti-Semitism in all political parties, not just the Labour Party, but still within the Conservative Party as well. Um, these are issues that Jews will never lose sight of. The tragedy is it's been around for so long, it's become part and parcel of our makeup. We mustn't become one denom denominational. We have a much bigger role to contribute than just talking about anti-Semitism. And if we've got views on other subjects like I have on China, I don't want those to be confused with the issue of anti-Semitism because I'm making comments on China based on China. And I make comments on Israel based on Israel and I make comments on Britain based on Britain as well. Well, Graham, this has been a fascinating discussion on China and on anti-Semitism. I can't let you go, though, because you're a familiar voice to particularly people in London as a former LBC presenter in the 1990s. And I'm fascinated by the history of LBC radio. It's, it's Britain's oldest commercial radio station. And it's got, a, it's got an extraordinary history. A lot of people will only be familiar with it in the context of the last few years when it's become a national digital station on, uh, on DAB and on the internet and everything else. But you were there in the 1990s. You must have worked with some fascinating people in that era. Because I think of the legends of phone-in radio, Brian Hayes, Robbie Vincent, Mike Dickin. You were in amongst the mix when LBC was going through that fascinating era in the 1990s. Tell us what that was like. I, I was very fortunate. I mean, I wanted to make my way in, in radio. Eventually, uh, my other work took over and I couldn't do the hours and do the work as a, 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 an arbitrator, which is my, my, my profession, commercial arbitrator. Um, but I, I was fortunate to come in contact with Fred Housego at a very young, very early stage of my development. He the was mastermind a very champion. Man. Absolutely. He didn't have the best of health and he couldn't always make it up from Brighton to do the overnight and I'd get a call and I'd jump in and take his place. And I always liked Fred. He gave me an opportunity. Doug Cameron was another. Legend, always yeah. willing, Always willing to offer help. And I find it's a feature of people in radio. You meet some good people and they want to pass on their own skills. I haven't seen Doug for, for a number of years. He's but living in I Scotland now, isn't he? I'm not sure. He was. He used to live around my neck of the woods, mm -hmm. but this was 10 or 15 years ago. But he was a, a very charming man who knew how to look after himself if he got into a battle. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and there were others around as well. I came to prominence on the back of Eric Cantona's assault on a spectator at a Manchester United Crystal Palace game. Yeah, Kung Fu I was a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, I'm a referee, and there was a lot of interest in what was going to happen to Eric Cantona, and it just gave me an opportunity to get on the radio, and from that, I challenged them and said, look, I think I can put a few words together, let me have a program, and suddenly I got a three-hour program overnight, 
The hours were a bit difficult, but I've got to tell you, if I go back and think about what I did, I absolutely loved it, Marcus. It was wonderful to have exchange with people through the night on issues, political or social, was just lovely. Well, yeah, o overnight radio is special as well because I, I'm, I'm a phone-in radio anorak and a, a speech radio anorak. I have been going back to when the original talk radio launched in 1995 and to, to you know, some of the greats who are no longer with us, I think in particular the likes of Mike Allen, Mike Dickin, people like that who are no longer around. And like I say, yeah. those two were both part of LBC in the 90s before they moved across to talk radio. Um, so for you to be a part of that, you, you, that schedule at that time, okay, LBC had a bit of a tumultuous period in the 1990s with the changes of ownership that went on and everything else. But to be a part of that must have been absolutely wonderful. And maybe we can explore that in more depth in a future podcast. But final, final point, because time is against us, I'm afraid. You're an Arsenal fan. And yes. <laughs> this, this, this season, the draw specialists, uh, you know, you've drawn so many games, not going to get into the Champions League this season. Uh, you know, you have had a bit of a run since we resumed after the, after the lockdown. Where are they heading at the moment? Well, let me just remind you very, very briefly that when I came into Arsenal, if we're talking about the early 50s, some lovely Welsh players, Wally Barnes, Dave Bowen, Derek Tapscott, they yeah. were a part of Arsenal and uh, mm. they created a tremendous feeling of solidarity. I, I, I love them all. Mm. Um, Arsenal, I think, have got the right man in charge. He hasn't had a chance to impose his own choice of players. He's inherited a squad and he's tried to turn them into a better team. And to a large measure, he's done that. They're still very vulnerable in defence and I'm sure he'll address that in the close season. So, as an Arsenal fan of many, many years, and I was at the cup final in 1952 as a young seven-year-old, just mm. at the time my father was getting busy with China, I hasten to add, um, I've just had Arsenal in my veins. And, you know, it's interesting because um, uh, you make your choice in a football team and it's for life. You know, mm. political parties, you've got to have values and preferences and priorities. But when it's a football team, it's the community around that football team that gets you going. And I was lucky enough to meet Alex James when he was just before his death in 1953, became a good friend of Bertie Mee, a lovely man, knew George Graham well. Mm -hmm. And I've always enjoyed talking about Arsenal, as indeed Spurs people will enjoy talking about Tottenham. I just think football is a wonderful social sport and we're lucky to have it. So you've got absolute faith in Mikel Arteta then, have you? He's shown enough to make us feel that we're on the right path. He knows he's got more to do. But uh, our next game, I think it's Liverpool tonight, isn't it? I think, I uh, think you're right, yeah. Well, think, uh, they, they, they've got, they're a bit sort of demob happy at the moment, aren't they? I mean, they're, yeah. they're, um, whilst I'm sure they're still being given the tough team talk by Klopp, I think their bodies are telling them, look, relax, you're champions. Um, so... Yeah. They're a bit demob happy, so you, you have got a chance tonight. But so again, this is one of these things we can talk about in a lot of depth. But Graham, you've been a fascinating guest. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to hear your voice broadcasting again after all this time. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again soon. Marcus, thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it just as much as you. Thank you. Graham Perry there, a fascinating man. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. <laughs>